Now this afternoon we are very happy to have as our speaker Brother Kumar Ramakrishna who is an Associate Professor and Head of Policy Studies at the S. Rajaranam School of International Studies in NTU. And his topic for us this afternoon is the threat of transnational terrorism developing a Christian response. Let's put our hands together to welcome him. Uh, hi everyone, I hope you can hear me. Uh, <clears throat> I want to thank uh, Roland for this uh, very kind uh, invitation to come and share some uh, personal views with you on what is, well, quite obviously a uh, very topical subject, transnational terrorism, uh, developing a Christian response. Uh, I'm also very happy to help Roland kick off his uh, series uh, this year, so I think what he's doing is uh, very important for all of us in Singapore as uh, Christians. So, <clears throat> uh, okay, in the time available, uh, this is what I uh, will try to do. I think it's important for all of us to understand the nature of the terrorist threat, the transnational terrorist threat. Uh, we will, of course, look at what uh, is the ideological nature of it but also how it's going to be manifested physically because uh, I think there's also, I think, uh, important for us to know. Uh, and uh, I guess the heart of this will be what I think as a Christian is a biblically-centered biblically response to this. Uh, I must say that uh, my perspective is that of a, I, I'll, I have to adopt, is that of a secular security analyst, right? and a Christian layman, so I'm not a theologically trained guy. So some of the ideas which I bring out, uh, I would you know, uh, appreciate your feedback because I would uh, like to also know how to think about this in a theological fashion. Well, so what are we dealing with? The changing nature of terrorism. Uh, you know, there are more than a hundred definitions of terrorism. There's no single uh, definition of terrorism which the, even the United Nations has uh, agreed upon and the reason for that is because it's, uh, you know the old saying, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. There are many reasons for that. In fact, there's a whole lecture in itself, you know, I, I've done that. Uh, we can talk about that later if you want, but ultimately if you ask me, ask most analysts what is terrorism, a working definition which I think most people will more or less agree with more or less, is that it always involves the deliberate use of extra-normal violence. The, 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 the violence has got to be iconic. It's got to capture people's attention because the whole idea is uh, the, 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 the horror generated by the, by, the, by the violence is something which people are supposed to always remember. It's to be seared into their minds. They'll never forget it. Uh, in the 19th century, there were these guys, the uh, anarchists, the social revolutionaries in Russia used to say that, you know, uh, intellectual propaganda is nothing to be compared to what they call the propaganda of the deed, right? The propaganda of the deed is something which, you know, one iconic act that shocks thousands will be of uh, more impact than uh, millions of uh, leaflets. They used to say that, you know. So an iconic act, a physical act that has tremendous, what they used to call moral effect, psychological effect. This is the whole idea of terrorism. You know, Lenin used to say, you know, Russian uh, 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 leader, original Russian leader Lenin, Vladimir Lenin used to say, 
the aim of terrorism is to terrorize. You know, I tell that to my students, they say, of course. You know, <laughs> no, but if you think about it, you know, the aim of terrorism is to terrorize. The whole idea is, I mean, if you are under a terrorist uh, state of fear, if a society is under threat of terrorism, it's simple things like you can't even go out the door without feeling afraid for your life. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I know some of my friends from Israel, uh, working in the security services, they, they even tell me, you know, they, even, they don't even ask their children to, to take public transport. Why? Because the terrorists would target the buses. Because it's easier for them to get onto public transport. So, they always say that, you know, this guy, my friend, used to tell me that he used to ask his children to take driving license and drive. It's safer to get to the university. You know, that kind of thing. There was a time in Washington, D.C. where there was a sniper. I don't know whether you remember the Washington sniper. People were literally afraid to go out because the attacks seemed to be so random. You don't know whether you're next. That kind of fear, the aim of terrorism is to terrorize. And it's deliberate. It's deliberate. I mean, somebody getting killed is an act of passion. That's not terrorism. Terrorism is always for uh, uh, violence used for some political demand because the idea is to use the terrorist act to persuade, uh, for example, the government of the day to give in to your demands, right? Now, some scholars are saying that uh, we are in uh, currently the fourth wave of terrorism, which is religiously motivated. You see, in the past, uh, I'll say the 1960s, 1970s, some of the terrorism scholars, the first generation terrorism scholars, like for example, Brian Michael Jenkins, well-known first generation terrorism scholar, used to say, the terrorists wanted a lot of people watching. They didn't want a lot of people dead. They wanted a lot of people watching. Why? Because terrorism is the weapon of the weak. Terrorism is always used by weak groups that they know that they cannot mount F-16 strikes against the government. They cannot mount tank attacks against the government because they don't have F-16s. They don't have tanks but they have people. And these people can uh, lurk uh, in the dark recesses of the neighborhoods and come out and strike, and strike fear, you know, uh, suddenly, unexpectedly, and so people are always in a constant state of tension. And the whole idea was when somebody died, was killed, the, whole, the audience is not actually the person who died, the audience is all of us. Because the message being, if you guys don't listen to us, what happened to him or her will happen to you as well. So it's not about, it wasn't about having a lot of people dead. It's just a lot about having a lot of people watching because by through this act, this propaganda or the deed will terrify everybody into submission to what they want. Terrorism is a weapon of the weak, classically, classically, right? But in the current era of religiously motivated terrorism, you have a called uh, David Rappaport. About 17 years ago, he wrote a classic text called The, the Four Ways of Terrorism. Uh, so we are in, in, according to him, about 1980, the Iranian Revolution, Soviet invasion in Afghanistan, and occupation of Afghanistan, rise of the Mujahideen, you remember the Mujahideen? We entered the fourth religiously motivated wave, right? So we move beyond the communist era, communism, uh, with its uh, focus on creating communist republics and we were of course Singapore, Malaysia, we were affected by that. There was the uh, third wave, so now we're in the, in, oh yeah, in the fourth wave, right? So in the fourth wave, religiously motivated terrorists don't just want a lot of people watching, they also want a lot of people dead as well. 
they are the, 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 religious, the religiously motivated terrorists still believe in iconic terror, right? But they also have a what we could call a, a religiously inspired motivation to frame what they do for religious purposes. For religious purposes. In the past, they will kill for creating a national, uh, nationalist uh, motivated uh, state, for example. Right? Uh, the communists wanted their, their communist republics, right? Uh, in the 19th century, the anarchists, they were always against authority, right? Uh, 20th century, uh, you have uh, all these uh, uh, Republican nationalist movements. Seven, 1970s, you have all these Cold War uh, leftist groups in, in Germany, the Bader-Meinhof gang. But now we are in the religiously motivated era. And, and these guys, they don't just want a lot of people watching, they also want a lot of people dead. They want to kill as many as people as possible because they think it's a divine injunction. They think it's what their interpretation of God wants them to do. So that's Brussels Airport uh, 2016. These two guys are the suicide bombers, right? Uh, this guy was supposed to blow himself up, but then he chabot, right? Uh, he was a handler. How, how convenient, right? This was uh, Paris. In fact, it was the same cell. Remember the Paris attacks in uh, November 2015? It's the same cell. They were they originated from a place called Molenbeek in Belgium. Closer to home, right? We have the attacks in uh, Jakarta in 2016, January 2016. Of course, we had the Bangladeshi. Uh, guys who are radicalized in Singapore as well. So Singapore is not immune to this. To recap our situation in Southeast Asia, we, it is not a new situation. Uh, we, of course, we will remember in December 2001 the Jamaat Islamia arrest. Right? These guys, they, uh, some people used to say at that time, I remember that Jamaat Islamia was the out, out, uh, outpost of Al Qaeda. Actually, no, Jamaat Islamia came from Darul Islam. Darul Islam is actually older than Al-Qaeda. Darul Islam was a movement that emerged in Indonesia after World War II because at that time, Indonesia was uh, caught between two potential directions, two potential political trajectories. One was a secular republican approach taken by uh, President Sukarno, right? and the other approach was the religious Islamic state approach taken by a guy called S.M. Kartosuvario. Right? So Carter Suvario was a very charismatic uh, preacher and politician who really wanted to create an Islamic state in Indonesia, Indonesian Islamic state. He was, they were defeated by the Republicans under Sukarno and he and Carter Suvario was executed in 1962. But his followers, right, these two guys in particular, Ustaz uh, Abdullah Sunkar and this guy is quite familiar, right, Abu Bakar Bashir. They were from Darul Islam, and both of them were inspired by Kato uh, Suvario's quest for an Islamic State in Indonesia. They carried on the, the fight. So in the 1980s, people like this inspired the next generation. This is uh, Hambali, Ridwan Isamuddin, who was both Jamaat Islamia as well as uh, good friends with the Al-Qaeda uh, number three, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So that's why Al-Qaeda and JI came together. And in fact, the, 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 the thwarted Singapore plot in December 2001 was supposed to be a, a joint Al-Qaeda-JI operation because you recall the targets included the Western embassies, uh, Western diplomatic missions, as well as Singapore uh, government targets, and uh, <coughs> Western uh, commercial enterprises as well. So Darul Islam beget 
JI, which is, was Indonesian based, but they spread throughout Southeast Asia. And those guys, long before ISIS came onto the scene, uh, talking about their caliphate, they were already talking about their own caliphate, right? Caliphate in Southeast Asia, Pan Southeast Asian Caliphate. In fact, they were quite hierarchical. JI, they tried to create a, like, at least they, they were aiming for four uh, administrative divisions. In sub, they actually subdivided Southeast Asia into four divisions. Singapore and Malaysia was one division. Indonesia was a second, another division. Uh, Southern Philippines was one more. And then even the uh, Australia, part of Australia as well. So they actually had these plans. They couldn't, of course, carry it out. But so in Singapore, we already experienced this religiously motivated wave in 201. Uh, October 202, the Bali bombings, if you recall, 202 people died, mainly Australians and uh, mainly Australians, 88 Australians, right? But that reinforced the threat of GI, right, to Southeast Asia. And GI was very much, uh, uh, basically, they originated Darul Islam, but a bunch of them went to Afghanistan, 1980s, to fight with the Mujahideen there against the Soviets. And so they met the, the Arab guys that later became Al Qaeda. So they uh, imbibed their ideology, right, their, their thinking, their worldview, and brought that back to Southeast Asia to start JI. So, of course, with, in the 2000s, there were other JI and JI related strikes in the region, especially in Indonesia. And JI has in, uh, itself, in itself, uh, given uh, birth or beget, so to speak, right, different networks. So, if you think of the Darul Islam movement as like a big tree trunk, of uh, the Darul Islam ideology, right? You have Jamaat Islamia, your Jamaat Shurit Tawhid, you got the uh, MIT, not the MIT Massachusetts, the Mujahideen, uh, Mujahideen uh, Islam Timur, which is the uh, East Indonesian Mujahideen, right? Oh, there's a West Indonesian Mujahideen as well. They are all these splinter groups, but they have a similar ideology. So right now, you got uh, the umbrella group, it's called Jamaat Anshirut Daula, JAD which is, you know, they are, they are, they have a family resemblance to one another, right? Let's put it that way, right? And they are connected to one another. That's Imam Sumudra, was the field coordinator of the Bali bombing. That chap was uh, Santoso. He was killed in July 2016. He was leader of the uh, MIT movement uh, in Postal Central Sulawesi. That, of course, you know who that is, right? Uh, he was Masalamat, uh, right? Masalamat. <laughs> Uh, swore an oath of allegiance to this guy, right? Of course, Masalamat, he wanted to, uh, before his first arrest, he wanted to go to Bangkok and uh, hijack an uh, Aerofloat jet, an Aerofloat plane crashing into Changi Airport, right? So that was, that was publicized. Why Aerofloat? Because of the fight against the Soviets in Afghanistan. So you see, there's this global thinking amongst the, the militants, uh, Islamist militants in Southeast Asia. Of course, now everybody is talking about ISIS, right? So, in fact, yeah, Southeast Asians in ISIS as well. And most recently, last year, between May and October, you're familiar with the fighting in Marawi, in uh, Mindanao, in uh, Southern Philippines. This was very significant because the ISIS-backed militants in uh, Philippines they were trying to expand ISIS influence into Southeast Asia. Why? Because as ISIS came under tremendous military pressure in Iraq and Syria, they were also telling their supporters worldwide, create provinces of ISIS throughout the world. So there are provinces 
in uh, Sinai, in Egypt, there's uh, in Yemen, they're trying to make uh, presence there as well, Libya, uh, Eastern Afghanistan, they're also trying to go to Eastern Afghanistan, but there they are coming, even the Taliban and ISIS, they will clash with one another. Same Sunnis, same religion, but it's about influence. Even ISIS, right? ISIS came from Al-Qaeda. ISIS used to be called Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but there's a difference. The ideology is more or less the same, but ISIS, they, they bring in more apocalyptic ideas. But the basic root cause of the split between Al-Qaeda and ISIS, right, is about the goal. When Osama bin Laden started Al-Qaeda and said, okay, we wanted to recreate the old caliphate or the Islamic empire, which last, uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire ended in 1924, because Kemal Ataturk in Turkey ended it, right, after World War One. So Osama bin Laden said, we must reconstruct the empire from Morocco to Mindanao. I mean, they're saying uh, Morocco to Mindanao, but it's a long-term project. Fine print, right? Long-term project. ISIS, the, 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 the grand, the spiritual leader, grandfather of ISIS, uh, Zarqawi, quite an nasty piece of work, right? But Zarqawi said, oh, you know, he, he quarreled. He, he kind of respected Osama bin Laden, but after Osama bin Laden died, Right, 2011, his uh, number two, he, uh, uh, Zawahiri, Ayman al-Zawahiri, took over Al-Qaeda Central. Uh, Zawahiri, Al-Qaeda, Iraq didn't quite respect uh, Zawahiri. And he criticized Zawahiri for saying that you're too passive. Al-Qaeda Central has become too passive. We can create the caliphate now. So that's what they tried to do in Iraq and Syria. And years, they, had, they held territory. 30,000 people, young people, went to Syria and Iraq to fight for them. 30,000. 30,000, can you imagine? Young people went to fight for them. So, but eventually they attracted a lot of attention. So now they were losing territory. As you know now, territory is almost gone. They lost a lot of territory. So expand. Southeast Asia, in particular Mindanao, was where they wanted to create the so-called East Asia Vilaya or province. in East Asia. So they were trying to do that, right? And Mindanao, why Mindanao? For decades, they have had uh, insurgency issues because the moral Muslims in uh, uh, Mindanao, for decades, right, have always wanted to create uh, an independent Mindanao, what they call Bangsa Moro, entity separate from Philippines, right? So they they had uh, insurgent groups fighting against Manila for many years. So that's why Mindanao was uh, seen by ISIS extremist ideologues as very suitable to create this province in Southeast Asia. So reports indicate that ISIS may be still be trying to create this uh, caliphate uh, out the outpost province of the caliphate in uh, Mindanao despite the fact they have been defeated in Marawi, right? And in fact, there are the reports that there are actually links between ISIS Central, the remnants of it in Syria, and Mindanao through Indonesia. So the, the, the links are there. So the threat to us is very real, and of course you know who that is, right? That's a Singaporean uh, ISIS militant. In fact, uh, end of last year, he released a video where he executed on the video prisoners of war. So the first time a Singaporean, a Singaporean militant did that. So to me, that was pretty significant, right? So what drives these guys, right? The ideology can be illustrated looking at this fellow. And his name is Christopher Cornell. He was radicalized in the US 
by ISIS ideology online. And when he was uh, arrested for trying to kill President Obama, the FBI asked him, what are you trying to do? So this is what he said. Uh, what would I have done? I would have taken my gun, I would put it Obama's head and pulled the trigger. Then he would have uh, basically attacked the Congress, right? And, uh, the, well, Israel's, right? Israeli embassy. And, we, and why? Because this is important. This is what they all think. There is a war going on. We want to wage war against us Muslims and shut up. But that's what would happen. This is what people like that, when they radicalize, they think these things, you see. And he says that he got his orders from IS. Uh, this one is being investigated. So this is actually the ideology. This is the ideology. So, so they, this, is, this is useful because it shows you what they think. So let's, let's, let's uh, dig deeper here, right? What is this ideology of uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, right? Actually, academics in this field, as usual, I'm sure you know I'm, being, I'm in from the theological side, they will never agree on what to call these things, right? <laughs> so you have a proliferation of different terms used, right? So I've heard, uh, the most common I would say is Salafi Jihadism, right? There I also come across Jihadi Salafism, I come across Bin Ladenism, right? Uh, the term which I like to use, students for mine find it easy to remember, is Al-Qaedaism, right, which came from a, uh, European source, Dutch and British, right? So what is this ideology which draws upon religion, right? Basically it says there is a war going on. There's a war going on. The Muslim world is at war with an international conspiracy led by the term which always comes you come across in the propaganda is Jewish Crusader Axis or Jewish Crusader Alliance. Basically they refer to US and Israel and their friends. Well, Singapore is a close friend to both US and Israel, so most decidedly we are part of the target for these guys, right? So we are, we are definitely targeted, that's for sure. In fact, the key element of the Al-Qaeda's ideology is that, you know why they can target civilians? It's very interesting, when I do my research and field work, sometimes I talk to some of these fellas either in the prison with the help of my police colleagues, friends, uh, think tanks in the in the region. So I asked, you know, uh, how come you all can target civilians? You know, because there's the laws of war, right? There's such a thing called non-combatant immunity. You cannot target these people. They say, no, you don't understand, right? Although the civilians do not participate in the so-called oppression of the Muslim community throughout the world, their taxes and their political support enable their governments to do the oppression. So they are not innocent, they are, they are guilty, they have dirty hands and therefore they can be targeted anywhere. Bus stop, shopping mall, plane, they can be and they are, they, anywhere, right? Even in the Israeli context, the, the Palestinian uh, terrorist groups will, will always tell the people, the, the citizens, the uh, the army of Israel are the citizens of Israel in uniform. The army of Israel are the citizens of Israel in uniform, i.e. they are the same. There is no such thing as no non-combatant and combatant, which is actually a very big deal, which means that they are legitimate targets. So they can at least tell themselves, although the world says they are wrong, but they can tell themselves that you know, they, are they are legitimate targets. And the other thing which is uh, very important is the idea of reciprocity. I mean, the Bible, it's an eye for an eye, right? 
two for two. They have a similar concept. You kill our civilians, we will kill your civilians. And one of the things which is very significant in the ideology is it, our blood is not less precious than your blood. You spill our blood, we will definitely spill your blood. You hit our civilians, our women and children, we will hit your women and children. ISIS is even more brutal than Al-Qaeda in this connection. They are actually, on the propaganda, social media, they even say that, you know, you can target playgrounds. And this, to me, is... Uh, when Al-Qaeda, although they're pretty brutal, I, I never actually saw them do that. In fact, I remember in December 2013, Al-Qaeda criticized ISIS, saying, hey, you guys are overdoing it. You know, you're, you guys are overdoing it. That's actually very telling. And I think one of the smart things, so to speak, which the, I, the extremist ideologues have done, there is a concept uh, in the, well, particularly the Wahhabi orientation, right, theological orientation, which is of uh, the principle of unity and disassociation, i.e. basically meaning that, you know, uh, Muslims should hang around more with their own kind than with non-co-religionists. Non the principle of unity and disassociation, there's an Arabic name, uh, I can't really pronounce it very well, unless those who are Arabic here can, you know, pronounce it. Al-Wala, Wal-Bara, oh, that's what it, you may have heard about, heard about it. Okay, but I think it's also no, okay, that's an ideological basis for the physical threat. I think we should know, what's the physical threat? There are organized terrorist networks like ISIS, they are still around, but at the same time, you must have seen a, the, this uh, rise of lone wolves, or lone actors, or self-starters, right? They are, there, they are not necessarily told ISIS by ISIS, go and do this, but they will do it anyway because they are inspired by the ideology. And after they do it, ISIS Central will say, oh yeah, yeah, those are our soldiers. Yeah, but actually they, are, it's, they didn't even know. They just claim, you know? <laughs> but, but this is what happens. And you know, you look at Southeast Asia, right? Now, ISIS has actually transformed the operational situation. Because it is a fact that even after their defeat in Iraq and Syria, they still have support. The, the group that was trying to create uh, some space for ISIS in the Philippines, they have lost a lot of people, but there are still pot uh, potential leaders floating around. And they are trying to re, according to reports, they are trying to reconstitute themselves in other Philippines, southern Philippines cities. Uh, and there are some of these uh, pro-ISIS ideologues around. Uh, he is a well-known guy called Aman Abdurrahman. Uh, he is uh, the, probably the leading pro-ISIS extremist ideologue in Indonesian, uh, Salafi jihadist in prison, but. Probably Indonesian prisons is, you know, they still have uh, issues, they're not so tight, so they're trying to work on that. The Indonesians trying to work on that. Uh, but for example, he, although he was in prison, he was able to coordinate outside. And this guy is called Sunak Kim. He was part of the cell brought together by uh, uh, Inspired and, you know, uh, linked to Ahmad Abdurrahman. And they were involved in the Jakarta attacks in January 2016. On top of that, there are Bahasa websites and publications like Dabik, uh, which is an ISIS publication. And ISIS, in contrast to Al-Qaeda, ISIS social media output is much more sophisticated, uh, much more professional. They actually spend resources on it. And you must understand, ISIS, not just a bunch of religious fanatics, because what happened was, Americans made a, <coughs> well, you know, and when they conquered Iraq, they put together all the, the, the former officers and uh, significant, um, guys from Saddam Hussein's army, military, 
put them together with the, the, the religious extremists and they hothoused each other and they got everybody got radicalized so when they broke out the ISIS guys they, they fight pretty well because they're ex-Saddam army guys you know so that's why um, a lot of people were very surprised how come they're able to hold territory for so long because they're ex-military you know they're radicalized ex-military right and one of the things they do they are, they can, they are quite capable of strategic thinking that's why they put out their social media output like the big magazine you can find it in english right you can find it in english uh, bahasa right the malay language publications now the big has been replaced by uh, another magazine called uh, rumia 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 right so there are all these stuff floating around on social media social media when I mean, that means in your handphones it's that accessible to you so and to especially impressionable young people which brings me to what the future attacks could be we have seen this already in southeast asia and other parts of the world plots by local groups on behalf of isis for example this jakarta attacks right uh, combination of returning foreign fighters from syria and iraq from the region in marawi in, in, in mindanao from uh, may to october the fighting was not just done by the philippine militants there are also indonesians there malaysians and people from even further afield right so they were there so it's global it's a global presence right that's significant right and but of course something which all law enforcement agencies around the world are very uh, perplexed by very worried about is this self-radicalized lone wolves right and many of the lone wolves are not on the radar screen they get radicalized and unbeknownst to a lot of people and when they strike it's a big shock to people right in terms of organized plots affecting Singapore I'm sure you must have re remembered the Marina Bay Sands plot in August 2016 right it was done by a cell KGR Katiba Gong Rebus right a boss new cell right so the leader of the cell Kiki Ramat Deva that's him looks very normal right? all these guys look very normal okay? but you know they are well looks can be deceiving he was in contact with this guy Barun Naim who so uh, a significant ISIS central leader in Syria, right? So they communicated by telegram and uh, this guy passed uh, him information on bomb making and even they apparently the cell experimented with, with rockets, you know, uh, amateur rockets, right? They are, they are not able to fire and hit Singapore from Batama. They, they can't do it, all right? They're, I mean, that's the good news. The bad news is they're actually thinking about it. <laughs> if you think about it, the good news is they can't do it currently. But they're thinking about it. You know, thinking about it. So, I mean, among some of my colleagues in the military studies side, they're saying, hey, how to do it? Can they do it? So somebody said, what did they put it in a boat, go up to, you know, near to the, the thing and then fire, you know? I don't know. I, I don't work in that area, but. And of course, this has been publicized on the social media. They mentioned the stock exchange and the port. It's online that Singapore is targeted. Uh, many, well, eight years ago, I was in the Indonesian police headquarters and I had a chance to meet some of these Indonesian militants, right? One of the most interesting meetings I ever had. So I asked one of them, is Singapore a target? And he said, yes. I said, how come? There were two reasons. Number one, you, you guys are too close to the Jews and the Crusaders. And number two, you went to arrest our friends, the Jamaat Islamia. So for these two reasons, you are a target. Right? 
Well, to me, I was thinking that even if we didn't do anything, we are still going to be a target because everything we stand for, secular multicultural society, is quite anathema to them. You know? So we'll never be able to you know, be stay out of it. It's impossible. And the thing which actually worries a lot of law enforcement people now is that because of the technological trends in terms of a cheaper internet access, uh, the smartphone has been quite a revolution for everybody, including, unfortunately, the terrorists. Right? So these are your personal computers. When you can be watching stuff for hours and hours on end, and nobody will know. Nobody will know. So this is one of the big challenges. How do we prevent people from getting radicalized? So, I mean, it's the self-radicalization thing in Singapore has been there since about 2007. Right? In 2010, uh, full-time national serviceman, freelance religious teacher, and one other guy was radicalized. They were detained, they were arrested, uh, not, they were radicalized by him. He's dead now. That's Anwar bin Alaki. At one time, English speaking, American citizen, uh, uh, and a very leading ideologue for Al Qaeda. He belonged to a group called Al Qaeda Arabian Peninsula based in Yemen, and they produced uh, the, the first English speaking, English uh, language magazine called, for, by Al Qaeda called Inspire which later ISIS copied by, you know, they call it uh, Dabik and Rumiya. But this guy was so influential, they called him the Bin Laden of the internet, which is why the Americans targeted him and killed him in 2011, because he was too powerful, uh, I mean, too influential. He even radicalized Singaporeans. He even radicalized Singaporeans over a long distance, you know. So how he can do, do so? Internet. Internet. So the episode shows the danger of violent extremist ideology. Extremist ideology can come through many means. It can be a person preaching to a, to, to a group. It can be through books. It can be through magazines. It can be online. It can be face-to-face. -face. So this is one of the big challenges the security community are trying to deal with, how to fight against it. This is one of the things which are... Conferences and workshops are held all the time currently to address this very issue. And I tell you, I hate to say this, but I have to take my hats off to the ICS fellows because you know they have made very, very effective use of social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube to produce, you know, uh, reach out and self-radicalize a lot of people. And the teams are very smart, right? I mean, you know, YOLO, right? You only live once, right? See, you YODO, you only die once, right? Why not make it martyrdom? <laughs> they don't, that's why I'm saying they, are, they, they really know how to do it. And, you know, the, the whole stuff, uh, you can just go online and see. Uh, no, no, don't go online. No, 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 no. <laughs> and then all, there, there, there's this idea of jihadi cool, right? In the sense that, I mean, they will say to young people, they always target young people. You know, young people are impressionable. They'll say that, oh, you know, your school holidays, rather than doing something silly, you know, why do, uh, I mean, and boring in your hometown, come and join us in Syria or Iraq, right? And, you know, come and, uh, we will, you have fire weapon, fire weapon, you know, have some status, you know. Uh, and young people, young guys especially, are very attracted by that sort of thing, you know. Uh, and then so, for example, this chap says, you know, on the way back from Islamic State Raqqa in the back of a van, chilling and sipping coffee with my man. It's like fun. It's like fun. It's like an alternative holiday, you know. A lot of people go there, they don't come back. They get radicalized, they get caught. So it's a trap, you see. 
and see some of these uh, young women, this is a British girl, I think her name is Aksa Mahmood. She <clears throat> became eventually a very influential recruiter for uh, young girls to go and become the brides of the fighters, you know. And because ISIS, they, they, they actually thought about what they want to do in their, their so-called uh, Islamic State because they wanted to create a new society. They, so for a new society, you, you don't not only just need fighters, you need families. You need uh, young people to come there, both sexes to get married and form new families. So all, not all the propaganda is about beheadings and that kind of thing. It's like, you know, some of the propaganda at the peak when they, when they had their territorial control is like, oh, see, the medical facilities are very nice. Uh, see, it's so nice. It's life in the perfect is a caliphate. You know, it's, you know, it's very peaceful. You know, so they actually say, say you know, come and, you know, back home. The, the, the message is like, back home, you are nothing. You are nobody. Come here and you uh, play a role in building this new society. Who, young people, who wouldn't want to be part of something like that? It's exciting, you know, it, it's meaningful. It's meaningful, right? So a lot of people have gone. And you see their memes, I tell you, their memes are very good. See, they appeal. Sometimes the people with the worst past create the best future. So you may think that you have failed. <laughs> As a, as a person, you know, you may think you have failed as a person. So I'm giving you the chance to redeem yourself. Be somebody, you know, set your heart right before God. Set your heart right before God. And they, they, they attract all these sort of guys. Say, oh, give me a chance. And it's not very different from how Jamaat Islamia recruited those guys back in 2000. Actually, before 2000. Because a, a number of them were not very happy their, their religious life. If they felt they need to turn over a new leaf, unfortunately, they got the wrong religious teacher. So, so it is similar, similar, you know. And you know the lone wolves, right? It, I mean, there's the the, the Al Qaeda. This is Al yeah, Inspire magazine actually had in English had an article called you know how to make a bomb in the kitchen of your mum. <laughs> and it sounds funny, right? But, do you know in uh, the Boston Marathon bombers in May 2013, they read the article and they made those bombs. It actually, it's been even been, uh, it's even been translated into Bahasa in our part of the world, right? And not only that, not, not only must law enforcement worry about the actual terrorists, they must also worry about the, the idiots young people who are so free, too much time in their hands. There was another guy, a teenager that read this and he actually built something and put it in the London underground. But he was arrested and the whole thing, you know, uh, was uh, uh, before it went off, right? So the police asked, well, why you do this for? They, they thought it was radical. I said, no, I just wanted to see whether it works. You know, so it's from, if you're a police, uh, it's a real big challenge, right? So, the lone wolf can use, in fact, this is important, they can use many, many different types of uh, modalities, right? Simple weapons are also possible. There are diverse lone wolf threats. You can, nowadays, you can use a truck, right? If you can get a weapon, your weapon, you not use a knife. In fact, this guy killed this guy using a, a knife, right? Because the pressure, this is a, the Boston Marathon, and even in Singapore, we had a a uh, uh, young man picked up three years ago and wanted to use a knife, right? And just quickly, 
this is what was put online, right? You're saying that, you know, you can kill a disbelieving American or Euro, uh, European, especially the spiteful, they really hate the French, right? Uh, Australian, Canadian, right? How? Kill him in any manner or way possible, smash his head with a rock, slaughter him with a knife, run him over with your car. It's online. So it's an appeal, you know, you don't have to come here and be trained and go back. You can carry out your operation where you are. So this is a big challenge. So now for the final part, five possible Christian responses. You know, I've tried to think about this because no, I don't normally do this, right? So I thought about it. Well, I would say what is absolutely foundational from my point of view as a layman, Christian layman, is first of all, 1 Timothy 2.1.4. You know, request, press, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone, especially for those in authority that they may have the wisdom to enable us to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I think that's absolutely foundational, right? Praying for the authorities. The other thing is, I think we need to also pay more attention to current affairs. Uh, that's one reason why I shared with you uh, what I know from, uh, from the, the terrorism literature. I think we need to know what's going on more depth. I like this verse, I wisdom, dwell prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. Right? So I, I think that's important. And I think very, very significantly, we should know and understand and acknowledge that terrorism has many faces, right? That guy is called Timothy McWay, right? And he uh, was involved in the 1995 uh, attack on the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, right? And he was a Gulf War veteran. He belonged to this uh, movement called Christian Identity. In the US, basically those guys felt that uh, the US government has been infiltrated and taken over by international conspiracy of Jews and Freemasons. He was very inspired by a book called The Turner Diaries, read, uh, let, uh, written by a guy called William Pierce that, that put across this particular idea. And he was motivated by extremist ideology of a different type, right? the Christian identity. That guy, that was uh, 1995, same year, right? Rabin. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin killed by, not by the Palestinians, but by a guy called uh, Yigal Amir, who belonged to his own Jewish community, Jewish extremists, because this guy Rabin was seen by the right-wing uh, Jewish community in Israel as being too close to the Palestinians because Rabin was trying to have a peace deal, the Oslo Accords, 1993, right? And so, the, the right-wing uh, Jewish community felt that he had sold out the Israeli birthright, right? And so they put a curse on him, uh, and this guy took it upon himself to carry out the curse, and he assassinated Rabin. Jewish extremism. So you got Christian extremism, you got Jewish extremism, you got Buddhist extremism. This is in the headlines nowadays, right? Biratu in Myanmar, right? And he is going after the Muslims, the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, right? And he has very, very rough things to say about the, about the Muslims in Myanmar, right? So you have that. You know, of course, you have Ahmad Abdurrahman, uh, Muslim extremism. This guy, Breivik, he was the most dangerous, the most deadly lone wolf because he killed 77 people in Oslo in 2011, right? Uh, his ideology was motivated by a very extremist right-wing understanding of uh, the fear of Muslim domination of Europe by 2030. 2030. So he, he's also similar to 
uh, McQuay, a very right-wing interpretation of the Christian scriptures, very, very extreme right-wing. So you, 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 that terrorism has many faces. It has many faces, right? Which is why I think a very important uh, third response is avoid Islamophobia. This is a big challenge. It's a big problem, right? Because, and this is a worldwide problem, mainly because of media coverage on, on, on the Al-Qaeda and the ISIS people, right? So ultimately, the Muslim community in Singapore, the leaders, they know. They've, they've known about it for many years. They're trying to do something about it. They're trying to take the lead in fighting the ISIS ideology. But as I've shown you, that's why I wanted to show you, the social media of ISIS is very, very skillful. So they need help and they've been trying to work out how to counter the social media, right? How to be, make a message which will be more effective than the ISIS message. And so the government is working together with them, as well as academics like myself, right? And be sensitive. Uh, to, you know, we, we should not tar all of them, all the Muslims with the same brush because we must also see that there are a lot of Muslims that also reject what ISIS does. They do not accept ISIS. They say that they are not Muslims, right? So if we tar everybody with the same brush, it actually plays into the hands of the ISIS ideologues who are actually saying that, you know, there's no point cooperating with the government because they're all against you anyway. So why are you wasting your time, right? So, which is why I think it's our Christian duty to support the progressive Muslims and their leaders in the multicultural place like Singapore, right? To prevent, uh, no, don't towel them the same brush, support them, and don't play into the hands of the ISIS extremists. The, I mean, the Bible says, right, prudent man sees evil and hides himself, the knife proceeds and pays the penalty. The other thing is, a good Christian citizenship if there's a terrorist attack. In Australia, there's a very good example. 2014, after that, the Sydney siege in uh, uh, December that year, there was this particular lady who, who likes to wear the, the headdress, a tudong. She was very afraid of going on public transport because she felt that everybody will blame her for what happened. So this uh, uh, non-Muslim lady said, oh, don't worry, I will ride with you. you know? And so they, she, she rode with her and it became a a meme which we went global, uh, went viral. It was very good. I mean, I'll write with you, you know, to show that we, we know that you, you guys are not representative of the extremists. I think that's a good example of good Christian citizenship, something we can do, something constructive. After all, Michael 6a, right? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly with the Lord your God? Ultimately, responsible for, be an active and responsible citizen. I mean, the SG Secure, you heard of it. Right? I mean, I think it's, it's just download the app <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's useful information, right? And uh, ultimately, I think, I think based on my own observation as a Christian layperson, we, we think it's very important for us not to become too insular, right? And get into a holy huddle and be disengaged with society. In fact, people have written about this in the academic literature. That's Cass Sunstein, who... Among other, he's a University of Chicago legal scholar, but he's written about a number of topics and his work on extremism is actually very good. Right? He, he wrote a, a book called uh, Going to Extremes, when he, ex when he uh, tried to explain how extremism occurs, radicalization occurs. And he said it can, it can happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere. And he said the big challenge is in societies, when, in, when, and when enclaves become, communities become too insulated, that's where problems will, will arise. So we have to avoid insulated enclaves. 
I know whether this guy is, uh, you know, Charles Kimball. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote this book. I, uh, no, I read this book. Right? <laughs> I wrote other stuff, right? And he makes similar arguments, right? And he was saying that ultimately, uh, religious extremism can occur when you have insulated groups espousing absolute truth claims. Basically, I have the truth and nobody else, right? And you have the followers that uh, blindly obey and don't cre uh, question and check and uh, you know cross-check what the, the leader says. Right, establishing ideal times, saying that oh, we have to act now because you know, uh, otherwise we will be unable to you know we'll miss the opportunity to do something for for God. And uh, anything goes and justify the means. And you know when you talk, start talking about holy war, then I think it's alarm bells uh, you know should be rung. And ultimately, I think the fifth and final response is. Fear not, I think the essential truths of Holy Scripture remain valid as ever in this era of terrorist threats. I mean, uh, Deuteronomy 31.8, very familiar to us, right? And uh, Psalm 91, right? Because he loves me, I'll rescue him, I'll protect him because I'm, he knows my name. He will call upon me and ask him. I'll be with him in trouble, I'll rescue him and honor him. Long life will satisfy him and show him my salvation, right? So ultimately, I think we also need to have a foundation of personal faith in God. Personally, I think I put this slide in because as an analyst, I do think that when the, you know, the authorities say that it's a matter not of if but when, I kind of think that they are right. You know, so if something does happen, I think we do need to have a Christian response ready. You know. Alright, that's it. Thanks very much. Thank